In today's episode of Surf Splendor, the horror story of a Costa Rican surf trip gone terribly awry. Then to Los Angeles, where two young entrepreneurs are handcrafting personally tailored wetsuits. We then take you to Cabo San Lucas, where controversy erupts over a viral video of a drunken surf trip. Then to Lowers, where Playboy Playmates team up with Jamie Foxx to defeat Dane Reynolds in a surf contest. True story. And lastly, how one surf photographer plans to peer pressure kids away from drugs. That's right, we're bringing you five summer stories on this week's episode of Surf Splendor. episode of Surf Splendor, where we bring you conversations about surfing. I'm your host, David Scales. Um, If you're new to the program, this is only episode six, so you haven't missed much. But the past five episodes are all archived and available for free download on iTunes and Stitcher, and also on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. If you do use iTunes or Stitcher, uh, make sure to leave a rating and a review of what you think of the show. Uh, it really helps grow the show, and, um, and that's just a great way to also help people find it. But you still want to come to our website because we post a lot of additional content for each episode, like videos and photos of whatever we're talking about on the show. Also, huge thanks to all the Down the Line fans who came over from the episode I did with Scott Bass. The response was really positive, and so we've scheduled another of that same format, Surf News. Um, We've scheduled another episode for late October, so you can look forward to that. I certainly look forward to that. And um, also, everyone has done a fantastic job of sharing this show. The numbers have steadily been growing, so please keep that up. The more people listening, the more shows we'll produce. Right now, episodes are scheduled for every other Monday, but maybe if this thing keeps growing, we'll do it every, you know, we'll start doing it weekly. So, um, also, thanks for the kind emails, tweets, Facebook and iTunes comments. Keep them coming. I'm watching them. I really appreciate it. You can also find us at Surf Splendor on Twitter and Instagram. And I guess that's it for the updates and business. And it brings us to today's episode, Five Summer Stories. From Costa Rica to Cabo San Lucas to California, we bring you five summer stories that represent an eclectic cross-section of our sport. Thanks for listening. I'm glad to have you. And I hope you enjoy today's show. Don Fee. Dave. Yeah, can you hear me? Okay, so this conversation was recorded over the telephone, obviously, so I apologize for the quality of the recording. Great, dude. Um, Can you hear me all right? Good. Okay, cool. And then uh, my friend that was driving, he 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 was going fast to begin with, like on the dirt roads, and I said something to my friend in the back, like, fuck, he's kind of kind of out of control a little bit, huh? And then literally like 20 seconds later, we come over this bump on on the dirt road and we just start fishtailing one way. And we were going probably like 40 fishtailing and then he just tries to over... He, was, he just tried to overcorrect it and... I'm going to pause the story right there. That's Michael Dunphy's voice. Maybe you've heard his name before. He's a 23-year-old professional surfer from Virginia Beach, Virginia, He spends most of the year on the road traveling to WQS events and on photo trips for magazines and his sponsors. On this particular trip, he was down in Costa Rica. Yeah, we were just going down to Costa Rica basically to get away from... It was just after the US Open and uh, I've been doing contests like pretty much two months straight and I just kind of wanted to get away and do 
They just go surf, you know? Just... They scored fun waves, the kind you'd expect in Costa Rica. Warm, blue water barrels. Nothing scary or crazy, just playful and fun waves. They started in the south and worked their way north and spent their final days in Marbella with an old friend, Joe, who owns the Marbella Surf Inn. The roads from the beaches out to the main towns are pretty beat up, still like dirt, rocky roads with, uh, you know, like sharp turns and bumps and stuff. So the, the, the roads that we were on, like to go in certain ways and stuff, are, are pretty, you know, they're pretty dangerous. You don't really think about it too much, but... Uh, if you like, don't know what you're doing, it's pretty dangerous for sure. Dunphy does know what he's doing. He's been to Costa Rica five times previously and can navigate from the airport to almost any surf spot without missing a turn. This trip had gone just like any other. The guys had chalked it up as a success. They went to sleep early in preparation for an early morning departure. Left the hotel around seven and we were on the, um, one of the dirt roads that I was talking about from Marbella out to one of the main roads. You know, we were like 10 minutes into it. And then uh, my friend that was driving, he, we come over, like, he was going fast to begin with, like on the dirt roads. I said something to my friend in the back, like, fuck, he's kind of, he's kind of out of control a little bit, huh? And then literally like 20 seconds later, we come over this bump on, on the dirt road and we just start fishtailing one way. And we were going probably like 40 fish tailing, and then he just tries to over. He was he just tried to overcorrect it, and like he was just kind of out of his element. Like he didn't know really what to do, and he just overcorrected way too much. And we just started sliding into the side gully bank thing, and just hit that sideways, going like 40 or 35ish, and then just started flipping. It all happened so fast, so crazy. Yeah, we flipped about uh, two times, I think. I don't know, but we landed back on our wheels. But every window had blown out. The windshield was blown out. Like, the uh, the whole, like, wheels fell off. Like, it was crazy. And we were in the back not wearing seatbelts. And the should not have flown out of the car wearing, like, with all the windows blown out. It was kind of, like, amazing. Amazingly, no one was seriously injured. Michael suffered a deep contusion on his femur, but that was it. No seatbelt, the SUV flipped twice, and everyone was okay. It took the ambulance like 45 minutes to get there. They were so, like, if you got legitimately hurt out there, you would have been so done. Cause the guys showed up and they're like, oh, like, they didn't even know really what to do, really. So we got lucky with that. I know you're wondering, dude, what happened to the surfboards? Okay, uh, yeah, the boards were strapped to the roof, and we, uh, they, the straps ripped, I'm assuming, before we started flipping, and the boards flown off, and they were, like, 10 feet behind the car when we got out on the road, like, kind of sweet, just chilling there, like, next to the car. They, I guess they had ripped off, and then just kind of fell off before we started flipping, so we ended up getting really lucky board-wise, like, none of our boards were really messed up. surfboards and humans unscathed. You know what's even crazier? They called Joe from the Marbella Surf Inn. He came, picked them up, and drove them the four hours to the airport, where Michael was still able to catch his flight and fly home on time. Now I can sing you the storyline And if you like my story, fine But ain't all right, cool, dude. Well, I got the story. Hopefully the recording is good. I appreciate you dealing with the hassle of this delay and all that stuff. All right, cool. And I'll, I'll hit you up next time I'm coming to Cali. Let's hang out. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks. I'm glad you're doing well. All right, thanks, dude. All right, later. That's your one free pass, Michael. Lesson learned. Buckle up, kids, and drive safe. I came across Michael's story when I was scrolling through Instagram one morning and I saw the photo he posted of the flipped vehicle. It looked really bad. I'll post the photo on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, as well as a link to Michael Dunphy's Instagram and ours, at surfsplendor. And up next, a story that could change the wetsuit industry as we know it. Coming in hot, so sit tight.
There's something incredibly satisfying about climbing into a perfect fitting wetsuit and paddling out to surf. Our life and passion is surfing, and we're on a mission to deliver the best wetsuit ever made. A few years back when I was shopping for a wetsuit, it was always a pain because I was in between sizes. So a large would be too long in the sleeves, a large short would be too tight in the chest. You're listening to a Kickstarter video for a company called Carapace Wetsuits. Kickstarter is a crowdfunding website. Basically, startup companies or projects can post their idea with a set dollar amount that it would take to fund their project. Viewers, strangers, family and friends can pledge contributions to the project. On May 8, 2013, Carapace launched their 30-day campaign along with this video and a set goal of $18,000. On June 8th, the campaign ended with a total of 118 backers and $23,510 raised. They had exceeded their goal by $5,510. Currently we're working with the former VP of Manufacturing from Body Love International and it's really partnerships like these that have enabled us to get this far. I first got involved with Carapace uh, a couple of months back. I feel they have tremendous potential because I feel that they can add something to the industry. I've seen the quality, I've seen the materials, I know the construction, and I think that there's a great opportunity for consumers out there to have an alternative to choose from. I came across their campaign in early June. A friend had posted the video on Facebook. I've owned every major brand of wetsuit, as well as some smaller brands like Patagonia, Boz, and Buell. And while I've always stayed warm, I've never really been fully satisfied with the fit, and I've definitely never been happy with the longevity of my wetsuits. So I was happy to see a new brand emerge with a focus on custom fit, and I was curious to hear more about the product and the success of their social media-based funding campaign. We needed capital to put our stuff into production. Um, we wanted some exposure, um, and we wanted, you know, kind of a small customer base to, to be um, kind of our, our our beta test group for yeah. for our product. And I, you know, we've met a bunch of guys that have ran their own Kickstarter campaign. Um, we've got inquiries from you know people around the world about you know private label deals and um just it's it's been pretty awesome you know kickstarter actually it also proved that you know this business model could work people were very interested yeah in a custom fit wetsuit over um, the internet and that's what actually was very uh, daunting to us we weren't sure if surfers were willing to spend 490 dollars online for a wetsuit a product that they've never seen before yeah so Kickstarter was a good indication that there are people out there that are interested. So once we funded our goal, we pushed really hard through social media to push our product. So kind of like validation, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. And through Instagram and Facebook, um, I think we've basically made that small like niche group of surfers that are really interested in us. And they engage with us, they ask us questions, we respond through email. Um, I've talked to many fans over the phone, and a lot of people are excited. So it's giving us a lot of, I guess, fuel to um, be excited and stoked to launch this product. That's Carapace co-founders Alex Wang and Andrew Park. They're friends who surf the beaches around the South Bay of Los Angeles, California. And while I can relate to their general dissatisfaction with wetsuit quality, it never dawned on me to make my own suit. Alex shared with me how the idea was born. I, uh, I traveled to China in 2005 uh, before I went to college and I went there and there's these markets where you can just pick out your fabric mm. and they'd make a custom suit, not wetsuit, just normal sure. suit in 24 hours. It was like really? 40 bucks and I was completely stoked on that idea but I had to go to college and so that never went through. Um, and then four or five years later I saw these like 20, 30 million dollar companies built on that idea of you know, um, making a custom suit at an affordable price um, and kind of leveraging web technology to, to deliver that. And so that's when I, you know, 
this guy's the, the shredder. This guy's the guy that can rip. But uh, and so I approached him in 2010 um, with this idea because I had problems fitting my wetsuit. I have really short arms mm. and like a big head, and so uh, it, he basically asked me like, um, "What kind of wetsuit will like work for me?" And at that time, I was uh, getting a deal through Excel, and it was working great for me. I liked the suit; it fit me like pretty good. And I recommended Excel. Well, he got one of the top of the line suits and it still didn't fit him. Hmm. And he was complaining to me like, what are we gonna do about this? So he started researching about custom fit wetsuits kind of in the South Bay area. And we went and visited, um, there are two companies and like it just didn't work. Like it didn't look great. The materials weren't that great. And it was kind of like, we kind of gave up and then he just kept on using Excel. One day he approached me and said, what do you think about making a custom wetsuit company? And I was like, you're crazy. You know, like, I don't think, um, I don't think there's really a market and I don't know how we're going to do it. A few weeks later, he comes back and he shows me this 20, 30 million dollar company that does, you know, custom tailored suits. And when he showed me the website, I knew exactly what he was trying to do. Yeah. And I was like, let's do this. So that was actually one of the biggest barriers of entry for us, which was, you know, how do we get a factory to be cool with making? How do we convince them that this is profitable when they're making suits one by one? And that was a huge barrier for us. And we actually decided to uh, set up shop and learn how to make the wetsuits ourselves. Oh, okay. And this was a huge challenge for us because both Alex and I don't know anything about manufacturing and don't know anything about wetsuits. So we had to or find didn't, someone. Didn't know. Didn't. Yeah. Now, now <laughs> going through this process, we, uh, we understand our product inside out. From, sure. from the materials to construction, design, because we had to go through this process. And we spent pretty much the whole summer and fall just putting wetsuits together. While you might envision a handmade product as being void of technology, Alex and Andrew have actually embraced technology to bolster their designs. They have unique algorithms and CAD software that allows them precision tailoring before the wetsuits are constructed by hand. And so our patterns, our materials are unique. Our algorithms are something that no one else is really using in the custom fit wetsuit industry right now. And so from having the, the best neoprene, having the best construction and having, you know, software technology that no one uses, we're really filling in, um, I guess, that niche of custom fit and just, you know, having something really it, special. It's actually interesting. We were just talking about this yesterday. If you look at the board mm -hmm. right there, um, we're talking about, you know, how we stand out from the other guys. There's big guys, there's small guys, and then there's overseas. Mm -hmm. Uh, the big guys they have good prices, but they don't offer custom fair quality. Right. Small guys they have high quality, but they don't. You know, it's pretty expensive, and they don't offer custom fit. Overseas, you can get custom fit and high quality, but it's not going to be cheap. You know, yeah, eight nine hundred dollars a suit. Right. So. And out of all these three, they don't have this algorithm pattern technology. So that we, we have all those check boxes checked off, and that's kind of I think our place in the in the market. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, it, so when I was, I mean, I guess I, maybe I surf more now than I did when I was young, but nowadays I expect a wetsuit to last one season, essentially. Even the top of the line, big brand wetsuits. By next season, it might look okay, but water's getting in. And it's yeah. like, I need a fresh suit if I want to stay properly warm. Um, what, do you, what do you guys have to say about that? I mean, and given that, the product is new, there's no longitudinal tests that have been done, you know, right. but, but how do you prevent against that or manage that? So for us, you know, we've uh, done a lot of testing and the, the taping's huge. Okay. Um, for us, all of our suits are, are hand taped. Yeah. And so um, that really, really uh, creates a watertight seal and, and keeps the seams together for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, well, another thing is that... Um, a lot of wetsuits break down, especially off the rack, because they don't fit you correctly. Yeah. Mm. 
They're, they might be tight around the shoulders, but fit you pretty well in the arms. So if it's too tight around your shoulders and you're constantly paddling, it's gonna break down around the shoulders. If you have a wetsuit that could fit you better on the shoulders, then it's gonna last longer because it doesn't have that much stress on the seams, even on the neoprene uh, panels. If you actually take one of your old wetsuits and you really look closely where it's breaking down, you see neoprene pieces falling apart. Right. And that's because it's constant stretch. Right. And with our wetsuit, since it's custom fit, you're gonna, you're gonna basically um, alleviate that problem of you know, too much stretch in certain areas. And I think that's kind of where we thought that um, it's going to last longer because there's less stress on certain areas. The taping that Alex was mentioning, all of our seams are taped, and they're blind stitched. Another glued. thing that's interesting too is, uh, you know, everyone markets like high stretch. Right. And, um, you know, there's a general consensus that, you know, high stretch material is more expensive, it's, you know, all this stuff. But what's interesting is that the higher stretch stuff, um, there's, there's more of a spandex blend in most of them, and it's actually cheaper. Yeah. It's yeah. just really a marketing ploy. And what's even more interesting is that the higher the, there's a direct correlation between how much stretch there is and how fast the neoprene breaks down. So if you have super high stretch, and this is what a lot of people do these days, they'll buy a suit that's too small for them. And these companies that are making wetsuits, they're making super high stretch. So they're stretching out the wetsuit like crazy. Mm -hmm. It feels like a good fit, but the neoprene and the seams are breaking down more faster. So what we've kind of tried to, to work on is is really really having that good fit. So with you know high quality neoprene and and the idea there is that it will last on. Okay. While perhaps we like to view our sport and the brands we love as being small, the reality is large dollars from non-surfing companies have been invested into our homegrown brands. That's not a bad thing, growth is good, but it also leaves room for guys like Alex and Andrew to enter the market and offer a more personalized product. We wrapped up our conversation discussing the value of such a thing and the importance of small business. Yeah, I've been stoked, like even outside the wetsuit industry, I've yeah. been completely stoked on uh, like uh, artisan made anything yeah. like the coffee that I drink totally is you know sourced in El Salvador and from a small small shop you know yeah um, you know even the music that I listen to it the, the, the places that I choose to eat like it's so uh, amazing to see these small shops uh, outdo the big guys on product on service on price I know, and I, I feel like maybe in other parts of the world, people have more direct access to that where there is a local baker or a local mm -hmm. whatever. In Southern California, everything is just so... Big yeah, yeah, that I think we're craving it now. And yeah. I do agree, though, like that food or that bread that was handmade tastes better. Oh, yeah, and it, it may be somewhat psychological in that mm -hmm. you have sentiment attached to it because you know the guy and his dog and his family or whatever the case is. But um, once you're invested in it, it's like, yeah. you know, you care more about it. Definitely. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why, like, you know, there was $319 million worth of funding dollars that went into Kickstarter and it's funding projects like these. And so that's why it's something that I'm actually um, really excited about. And anyone that is starting you know, a small shop, whether it's in the surf industry or not, um, I'm just, I'm rooting for, for you guys. And uh, it's it's just an awesome experience to, to be a part of something like that. Awesome. That's Carapace Wetsuits. I should specify pricing. Andrew mentioned at the beginning of that piece that the price for their wetsuit was $490. That's actually the price for their premium suit. Their performance suit is priced at $390 and that includes delivery to your door. The way they can offer a custom fit with an online order is that they have this really ingenious sizing instrument on their website where they show you how to measure yourself and then you just plug in the numbers and they ship you a custom tailored handmade wetsuit right to your door. Their first batch of wetsuits is going out to those who helped fund their Kickstarter campaign, but they hope to be open for general production in late October 2013. Go to our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, for all their info. 
Coming up, drunken debauchery in Cabo San Lucas leads to threatened lawsuits in California. And it's all captured on tape. Stay with us. watching this series, the surfboard and clothing company Lost has been doing this episodic video series called Here Today, Gone to Cabo, and it's endured a bit of controversy. It's a three-part series, and at the time of this recording, only parts one and two have been released. The series stars Chris Ward and Mason Ho, but it also introduces a new character by the name of Matt King. I drove all the way down with Chris. Lost my wallet, and now I'm like stuck. First time I ever lost my wallet. Usually he loses his wallet every time. The chick broke up with me just for going with him. Why? Because she knows. What was the plan? Come down we here, stay. We're going to waves, we're going to fucking surf. Everything was going to be great. I thought it was going to be cool. Mm -hmm. I just had this fucking worst shocker. Matt plays the part of Chris Ward's sidekick, whom is often drunk, and Chris seems to take some aggression out on him. All of that is fine, and honestly, it's kind of expected from Lost. Aside from athletes who shred, drunken debauchery is really kind of what the brand is known for. The controversy, however, came after episode one aired when Mason Ho posted on his blog this voicemail from Matt King. Hey Daniel, Daniel, it's Matt. Hey bro, I, I really like you a lot, but I don't like games, dude, I don't like bullshit. And you both should be. You're gonna fucking regret it, bro. Um, and I'm not saying you, but you know what? I'm fucking pissed off. And you know what? I don't have time for games. And uh, you guys can't use anything of my footage or I'll fucking do lost. Period. Done deal. It was supposed to be here days ago. I'm fucking pissed. So, bottom line is, you both should. You know, and I'm not saying it to you, but it's bullshit, and I, and I don't fuck around with that shit. So, uh, I'm feeling, dude. So, whatever. Uh, figure that out. At least call me back. In case you couldn't make all that out, Matt was unhappy with how he's being portrayed in the series. And that's actually only one of four voicemails that Mason posted. So I sat down with Lost filmmaker Joe Alani to discuss the series and the controversy that surrounds it. I guess it started with Chris saying, "Hey, I'm gonna, um, I want to drive, I want to drive down to that Cabo Six Star," and then, and then, um, then he said, "Oh, Matt, Matt King's gonna come with me," and I mean, those two together are like. I don't know what stepbrothers, like, something like that. Like they're hilarious. So, and then it was Matt's like, "Hey, we have to. We need someone's got to go document this. You know, this is gonna be all the time. Like, yeah, because you know Chris is. You know, he's he's always gonna get an adventure. You know, yeah. And the, the dynamic between those two is is hilarious. Right. Once we heard they were going, okay, we're gonna like rent the house in Cabo. I mean, we didn't know about the series yet until you get the footage. Sure. So we rented the house in Cabo for my friend. Mason's going to be there. Mike's going to be there. We're all going to be there documenting big parties. Hopefully there's some waves. Yeah. And then, you know, we just keep keep the camera rolling with those guys. And, so and who is Matt King for those who haven't seen the series? <laughs> Matt King... He's Chris's friend. He's from Dana Point, and he was, you know, he's a pro surfer, late 90s, early 2000s. He was on the WQS for like 10 years, and actually, he won a WQS in 2002, and he's always traveled with Chris, like, okay. on, when they're on tour, and Chris was on the QS, Matt would be with them at a lot of places, and he kind of just, you know, he'll follow Chris into hell and high water, just, yeah. just to be with Chris yeah. and to surf. We then talked about Matt's irate voicemails, and I asked him about Matt and how he feels about the situation. Has that been resolved? Oh, that's totally resolved. Okay. I mean, I talked to him right after that, and he's he's fine. That's kind of the same thing with the Ward stories. Like, 
no one's seen it yet, but in the end, they drive back and they score perfect waves. And he was really only upset because he wasn't surfing yet. He wasn't upset about all the um, beer drinking or whatever, but I, I was trying to make, you know, there, there's a lesson to Matt King, which I guess would be, you know, don't stay in school, you know, if <laughs> you're not really going to make it. Keep your options open. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and but everyone, it's he even says it, look, it's hard to let it go, like, because he, when you're that good and you've won a WQS and it's, you're that close to attaining something you know it's hard hard to give up and surfing surfing feels that good i mean it's you know like you go out there and do a good turn you're like oh my god like i was ripping like yeah. you're positive you're ripping yeah but you know <laughs> you might see the clip and you're not as good <laughs> as you are but right yeah i mean matt it's gonna be a comeback story i told him that too it's like you you have to be down to come back up and that's what people can relate to they can't that no they can't relate to Julian Wilson's perfect life and the perfect girlfriend right, right, right. and all that stuff. Like, I didn't... They can relate to Matt. Like, his chick's mad at him. He right. lost his wallet. But in the, but he never gives up. Like, he's still surfing every day with us. And and, and that's not going to ruin his trip. He wasn't crying, I'm going to go home. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm going to freaking sell some boards, I'm going to sell some clothes, and I'm going to surf. And he ends up scoring like perfect ways and that whole email thing it's voicemail yeah the whole voicemail thing you know it's it's nice to let the public see what's going on on the inside of the surf industry because mm -hmm. some of the, you know a lot of the public think we're like robots or something so this conversation is actually kind of a preview it's taken from an upcoming episode of surf splendor about surf filmmaking entitled the legacy of lost It'll have more from Joe Alani, as well as Lost co-founder and co-owner Mike Riola. Make sure to tune in for that episode and look forward to the third installment of Lost Here Today Gone to Cabo series, scheduled for release in the next two weeks. Coming up, Jamie Foxx, Playboy Playmates, Dane Reynolds, and the 17-year-old kid who brought them all together. Early Lowers Pro is one of the most high-performance surf contests of the year. In case you don't follow professional competitive surfing, I'll start from the beginning. Presenting sponsor Hurley added a modern age to twist this year by offering up one wildcard entry into the event to the winner of an online contest. The rules were simple. Any surfer could submit video clips of themselves surfing and the viewing public could vote on whose clips were the best. Hurley set the clips up like a normal man-on-man -man contest, one clip versus one clip. Each day, the viewing public voted which surfer was surfing better, and the contest would move round by round until only one surfer remained in the final. Before the online contest even began, the surfing world was abuzz with excitement. Rumor spread that Dane Reynolds, whom has never participated in social media, would be submitting clips into the contest. In case you've been living under a rock, Dane Reynolds is, arguably, the most interesting, and some would say the best surfer in the world for the past five years. Although he did compete on the World Championship Tour, he opted out of it in 2011, and has instead chosen to define his career with photo trips and video parts. This is why his Hurley Pro wildcard entry was such big news. Everybody loves Dane. Everybody wants to see him compete against the world's best surfers, and especially at lowers, in a popularity contest where the surfing public votes on who gets to compete in the event. There is no doubt that even Kelly Slater would be voting for Dane Reynolds. And they did. The surfing public, by and large, voted for Dane Reynolds and he handily won each round leading up to the semifinals. And that is where our story begins. Dane Reynolds was matched up against an unknown 17-year-old surfer from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, named Cam Richards. 
The day began uneventfully. Dane was winning, as expected. That is until Jaden Smith, the son of Will Smith, asked his 6 million social media followers to vote for Cam. The request came out of nowhere, and Cam jumped into the lead. The surfing world was awestruck. Then, to compound things, a couple of Playboy Playmates tweeted for Cam. The hashtag, I voted for Cam, did you, was started. Kelly Slater chimed in next, and he asked Surfing's fans to vote for Dane. They did. The battle heated up. Next came Jamie Foxx. In the late evening hours of August 1st, the Academy Award winner commanded his legion of Twitter followers to vote for Cam. The surfing world couldn't understand how this one 17-year-old surfer from the East Coast got Hollywood's endorsement. And then, perhaps in the most unexpected turn of all, in the waning hours of the contest, and desperately needing votes, Dane Reynolds himself emerged on Instagram. The notoriously private, reserved, and carefree surfer suddenly seemed to care. He created an Instagram account, immediately gained 10,000 followers, and began his own campaign to secure his spot into the Hurley Lowers Pro. It worked. The dust settled, and Dane emerged the victor by a mere 183 votes. Not even Hollywood could topple the surfing world's desire to see Dane shred lowers. Nevertheless, the landscape had changed. Dane's perceived aloofness was gone. On August 1st, 2013, we got to see something that we hadn't seen in years. Dane's desire to compete. And for that, surfing has Cam Richards to thank. The day was pretty nuts. Like, even the days before were fun, like getting all the votes, like rallied up and stuff with my family. And, and um, then that day when we woke up, like I was ahead like 200, and of course, like I was not expecting to get close to like beating him or whatever. I was like, oh well, I'm ahead of him. That's kind of cool. And and so like I went down the lowers and uh, just to go surf and stuff with Billabong. And we're like sitting down there, and I'm sitting on my phone most of the time. And, I'd go surf and I had to come in every like 30 minutes to check because like we were going like head to head and that's kind of when like all the people were giving me like shout outs. It's when uh, the Jaden Smith thing happened when I was down at Lowers and which was that freaked me out. Like I was, I was, I was like how, like I don't even know how it happened but luckily I have a friend in the skate industry, uh, a little kid named Alex Midler and he's good friends with Jaden, hangs out with him like every day and so I had a lot of baseball players like have like helped me out basketball players football players country singers and then of course like the whole jamie fox thing which is that that one was like made me speechless i didn't know what was going on and just a friend of a friend of a friend got that through because like a lot of the votes and a lot of the um, like all the people that are helping me out it wasn't really me sitting there begging them and asking them just my from my hometown myrtle beach south carolina they all had my back and they all really wanted me to win so they were doing a lot of stuff to get people like that involved and thanks to them like I thanks to them it definitely wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for my hometown and it was a very life-changing day and it was really like it was filled of like mixed emotions like all day long I'd be happy and then I'd be kind of bummed and then I'd go back happy it's just the whole day I was always known like after like all went down like when all these people found out who I was I was like well that's my mission accomplished like, I got one now like Dane Reynolds knows my name that's awesome Kelly Slater <laughs> knows my name totally. I mean that's cool Dane Reynolds said that I searched better than him in two waves like yeah. just those words coming out of his mouth meant everything to me and so no matter what happened like it, of course it had been cool to win but then again I kind of think it worked out as best way as possible yeah if I would have won I don't like I mean, of course, no, I'm not ready to surf against the best surfers in the world, but that's kind of the point of the wild card. The wild yeah. card is the kid that's not that good and can maybe beat some good guys, and if they do, it's cool. If they don't, that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah. And a lot of people were like, oh, Dane's had his chance, blah, blah, blah. Like, And, I mean, yeah, he does get a lot of wild cards and stuff, but, I mean, it, that whole format kind of suited him, like the video part, because he comes out with the craziest videos you've ever seen. And he's the my favorite surfer, and such a fun guy to watch especially at lowers like so i definitely think it worked out yeah. as best as possible um 
do you know, like, the Jamie Foxx thing, for example, did he just retweet it because he saw no, maybe somebody my, else tweeted it? My or? brother used to date a girl that's in the modeling industry, and she knows him personally. Like, she even posted on, like, Instagram, like, there's, like, full and waves over there. Um, he, she posted on Instagram, like, her text to him, like, directly, like, hey, can you help this kid out? He's like, yeah, no problem. And so that, that was awesome. Like, wow. That was crazy. Uh, can you name, like, name drop a few names? You you mentioned that there was country singers and athletes and stuff, but can you rattle off some names um, of people yeah, who the, supported you? Like, I know, like, Lee Bryce, the famous country singer, like, retweeted something. Had a lot of skateboarders. Uh, Alex Midler, this kid named Jager Aton or something. Um, we actually even had some Playboy models. I don't know what their names were. Um... It, it, there were so many that gave me shout that I had no idea until like a week after. Right. Because my feed was just going nuts. Like yeah. The Robbie girl off the Shipping Wars show was supporting me. Just so <laughs> many random people, but I mean, it helped. And if it wasn't for any of them, I, the, the day wouldn't have went the way it went. Um, how many Twitter followers did you have prior to the day, like prior to the start of the day? On Twitter, I only had like 600 followers, and I went up like... Uh, like a, a thousand almost. Okay. And then in Instagram, I went up like uh, six thousand followers. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. That's and that's in the matter of just three days. Because I mean, I got a few from the day before. Like people were giving me shout outs that helped, and it's just that day went up like freaking uh, yeah, like six thousand. Like I'm almost at ten k. I was only at like four thousand when I was there. How do your sponsors feel about the success of the day? Oh, they loved it because Billabong had a lot to do. They helped me out a lot because we, we had like Joel Parco give us a shout out. And of course, if that wasn't for Billabong, that wouldn't have happened. And like Billabong was my main backing. They're always like just giving me tons of shout outs, trying, doing everything they can to like help me out. And so if it wasn't for them too, they like they they were probably my number one people that like got me to where I was and so big thanks to them and they're super psyched how everything went they're really proud of me yeah they said I handled it really well and so awesome it was awesome what does it mean for your kind of uh I mean you're kind of on the amateur pro path and doing well in contests and stuff leading up to the event how does this change things moving forward yeah I, I mean I've had like solid results in a, like in my amateur years like Dane said like oh this kid doesn't have any results but I mean just no one knew who I was before this. I was kind of just the same little contest kid and all that. And I've won nationals. I've won like all the Rip Curl Grom Cert nationals and King of the Groms. All those kind of like contests like that. And then I'm do I've been doing well in the like QS and the Junior Pro. I just qualified for the World Juniors in Brazil, okay. so which was awesome. And it, it's good like because. I guess you could say I was known as a contest surfer, and I still, like, that's my main priority, but now I kind of want to begin, like, coming out with, like, cool web edits and, like, going sick trips and film that stuff, and so it kind of, this whole thing made me try a lot harder, and it, it's going to make, it makes me want to prove each people wrong, like, all the people are saying, like, oh, this kid's shit, and these people that have only seen four waves of me surfing, and so I just kind of want to show them that I can surf, and... I want to go on like trips of big waves and not just like the lower left and stuff like that. Yeah. Follow Cam on Instagram at CamRichards123. Dane Reynolds, of course, went on to secure the wildcard entry into the Hurley Lowers Pro, which is taking place the week that this episode is launching. Dane actually lost in round two to Kelly Slater, but you can watch the rest of the contest live online at thehurleypro.com. And for our fifth and final story this hour, we take you to Huntington Beach, California, where one surf photographer is leveraging the industry to take a stand against the heroin and prescription drug epidemic that's ravaging the youth. That's in a minute. Stay tuned. Drug culture is pervasive, but it seems to have a particular association with surf culture, 
either rightly or wrongly. Unfortunately, Huntington Beach, California has been infected with a heroin epidemic that has left devastating effects on the surfing community. Orange County Register reporter Leyland Connolly often does stories on surfing and covers the coastal community in Orange County. I asked her to comment about the drug culture and the youth in the area. I, the, the, the problem is the police, for, for you know, reporters, are a little bit tight-lipped because a lot of these deaths happen with minors, so they're not legally allowed to release you know, the, the reports and the information around these tests. But um, I did pull a couple of stats just from, um, from past articles with Orange County in particular, not just specifically um, Huntington, but in OC, uh, one of the things in a story that ran in mid-May, um, they had said there's, there's been 29 drug-related deaths in Orange County for people between 15 and 22 years old in 2012. So that's nearly 30 drug-related deaths of kids. Um, so that was kind of shocking for me to read. And here's another stat that I thought was really interesting. There's been a 61% increase in drug-related deaths in that same age group, 15 to 22, since um, 2007. So, you know, for that increase to go up 61% in, the, you know, the last five years, that's just mind-blowing. And that's it's not acceptable. And obviously, there's a huge issue with drug drug use in not only Huntington, but our entire county with, with young people. And, you know, it's not the drug use that a lot of, you know, us or people know is, you know, smoking a little weed when you're young or experimenting. And this is hardcore stuff with pills mixed with heroin. And um, it's ugly. It's nasty. And it's, it's taking kids' lives. And um, I just, I wish there was more that was being done about it. Do you have any insight into what authorities, considering those numbers have increased, like are authorities taking any new measures? You know, one thing I did read um, in one of those past articles we did was that they're doing drug testing at Huntington Beach High this year, I believe, starting in the fall semester. So that'll be interesting to see if it's a voluntary thing or if they're going to do it involuntary or, you know, I'm not sure the logistics of how it's going to work, but um but it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the consequences are for kids who turn up positive during these drug tests. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know also if there's legality behind that with, you know, um, invading people's privacy or anything like that. But, you know, I, I think it's something that needs to be done. And I think it's something that parents should support because, you know, a lot of these parents, you know, I sat down and interviewed Melody Love, Chris. I mean, sorry, Melody Lord, um, Chris Love's mom for the for the interview, and you know she had no clue what her son was doing, and you know parents just don't know what to look for these days, and even if they do suspect, you know, there's always that denial factor. Absolutely. So, um, so I think it, it's not a bad idea, and I think there should be support for for such things. Leyland just mentioned Melody Lord as being the mother of Chris Love. Chris was a local Huntington Beach surfer who passed away this summer due to a drug overdose. Huntington Beach surf photographer John Salanoa worked closely with Chris over the years and the death hit him particularly hard. And uh, just frothed, and that kid just frothed for surfing. Just that's all he ever wanted to do was just surf, surf, surf. I mean, nothing meant anything unless, unless it was a surfboard in the water. And the year before he passed, he said he wanted to move into big wave surfing. And I kind of chuckled at him saying, yeah, well, that'll be the day. And then he called me up and says, hey, Solanoa, let's go down to the wedge. Wedge is firing. I'm going to surf it. I'm like, Chris, you're going to kill yourself. Man, are you kidding me? He says, no, let's go. I'll even drive you. I go, no, I'll drive myself because I don't know if you're going to make it out of there. <laughs> And sure enough, man, he went there, and it was uh, it was probably a 12-foot day, and he grabbed two of the biggest biggest sets that came through. He grabbed them and rode them all the shoreline, and I just could not believe the smile on that kid's face. I mean, he came out there, and you could see that smile from, you know, a quarter mile away. You know, it was amazing, and uh, that was a tough one to take, and uh, I think Chris hit a lot of us hard. I mean... He had such an infectious smile. And yeah. He was just, 
He was an infectious person. I mean, you if you're around Chris, you knew Chris. You met Chris Love once. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna remember that guy for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think that's why it hit us so hard. And and his mother now, she's she's um, she's a part of DFS. You know, it, it helps her with her healing process. And I talk to her every single day. And mm. and um, you know, he was just one of 13 kids, but he was the the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, he was the one that's. I said, okay, enough's enough. I have to stop just watching these kids die. Yeah. John's a man of action. For the last segment of today's show, I'm going to let John tell you about the movement that he spearheaded in the wake of the multiple drug-related deaths that Huntington Beach has suffered and how he's partnered with some of surfing's biggest names to fend off the influence of the drug culture. But it was something I was thinking about uh, probably about a year before we actually formed this movement. Um, and basically it was because I've known so many kids that have passed away of drug overdose. And the concept came to mind of we have to change this probably when kid number six and seven died. And I, I did take those deaths pretty hard. You know, one of them was pretty close to the family. And I was just like, uh, something needs to be done. What needs to, you know, something has to happen. I didn't know what the, what the plan was, but I knew something had to happen. And like most of us, we have that mourning period where we say, this sucks. I wish someone would do something about this. I'm so glad it's not my family. Right. I feel for them. And and I was just one of those people. And uh, I just came to the conclusion after doing my own internal investigation with the social medias and talking to the kids that it was purely peer pressure. Hmm. It was peer pressure to be in this industry. It was peer pressure from the kids above them who have stickers on their boards. The peer pressure of today's world is not like, hey, Take this and smoke this. Take this and pop this. That's not the peer pressure. The peer pressure is, this is the life we're living, and we're living it pretty good, and this is what you're going to have to do if you're going to live this life. And so the kid's are like, all right, 10, 11, 12, they start off smoking some marijuana, and they go from that to pill popping to E, and next thing you know, they're on heroin, and, and they're dying by the droves. So the mentality behind DFS was uh, peer pressure. Let's, let's peer pressure the kids the other way. So... Let's start this and, and see what happens if we can get kids to think, hey, I'm a part of something. This something's really cool. And I see that my idol, Brett Simpson, Travis Logie, Nat Young are all DFS surfers. I want to be just like them. And I'm going to start living my life according to these guys because I just see a wonderful life in this DFS movement. And that's basically the concept behind it. If we can create something that the kids are going to look at and go, that's kind of cool, but we don't talk about drugs. Even though drugs is in our name, drug-free surf, DFS. But we treat it like a branding, you know, because all these kids, they all think they're going to be professional surfers. Or they want to get as high in this elevated sport as they can. And uh, with this, if we treat something like this, like a branding, as something that they want, as something they can gravitate towards, as something that we can kind of like do a reverse peer pressure, saying, hey, you want to be like Brett Simpson? You want to be like Ezekiel uh, Lau? You want to be like Keanu Asing? All wonderful guys on our program. Um, they're living a DFS lifestyle, and we just uplift them, and we just showcase them. And, uh, and so that's how it started, short two months ago. Yeah. This all started, and it started as a Facebook movement, and next thing you know, we, <laughs> we got people like Peter Mel tracking me down in the the parking lot on the south side of the pier tracks me down, points his big finger at me and says, I need to talk with you. And at first, I thought I was in trouble. And uh, he says, uh, you're the DFS guy, right? And I said, yeah. And this is only five days after I started the Facebook campaign. Oh, okay. And he says, you're the DFS guy, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he says, I have to be a part of this. And I said, really? And he said, absolutely. I, I, I have to be a part of this. And so I brought Pete Mel on, and I had talked to Brett Simpson via text uh, said, hey, Brett, I'm starting this movement to uplift uh, positive reinforcement within the, the surfing community. It's called DFS. You don't have to preach. You don't have to do anything. All you do is put a sticker on your board. And when people ask you, hey, what does DFS stand for? You say it stands for drug-free surf. I'm a drug-free surfer. And that's it. You just lead by example. And we got Brett Simpson on You know, right away. He, before I even finished the pitch, he said he was on. And the same thing happened with Nate Yeomans, you know, Nate Yeomans, Matt Pagan, you know, right away, before I even could finish what we were doing, they're on board. And the list just went down, and now we've got 30-some-odd professional surfers on there, and 
and we just were approached by um, Christian Asoy. You know, he wants to be on the team, and and a lot of uh, legendary surfers want to be on, and we've now have some Hollywood connections that want to come into this whole thing. And can you tell me that story? I saw uh, posting on Facebook one of those kids who reached out. Was it from Dubai or something? Um, no, we have a kid we just put on from Dubai, and he had a very unique story. Um, and his story is, uh, well, Dubai they have they have a very very hidden drug culture there, obviously. Um, anywhere in, in that part of the world, you know, uh, if you're caught with drugs, it's a death sentence there. But there is an underground culture there in which he, uh, he's a surfer there and, and, he, and, and he was starting to see it with a lot of his friends. He had lost no one and, and he reached out to us that he wanted to lead by example and he does travel all through Europe and surfs also. So we brought him on. But the real big thing that, the, one of the bigger stories uh, for us was a girl from Huntington Beach and um, her mother reached out to us via Facebook, and she said to us, uh, I need to have my daughter on this program. She has to be on this program. She's been fighting um, this drug culture for two years, and she went from being a beautiful young lady who surfs out here in Huntington Beach to someone who's being ridiculed, constantly teased, and that she does not want to go to school. She doesn't want to be anything associated with surfing anymore. She doesn't want to be associated with skating. She doesn't want to be a server, uh, associated with anything. She just basically has given up on life. And, and I says, well, I have to meet you and your daughter. And, and so they came here to my residence and, and I saw this girl when she walked in, she had zero hope in her eyes. Her eyes were empty. They were, they were, there was nothing. Her soul was missing. And, and I asked her about these questions and she, she started crying right away. Then her mom started crying and said, you know, I can't do this. She's all, I'm telling you, I am going to cave in this year. I cannot be this person. I was, I was someone that everyone liked. I had so many friends, and now every single person I know is doing drugs, and now every single person I know want nothing to do with me. And if they do, and I do go out, it's instantly, you have to take this. If you're going to be a part of us, you have to take this. And she said, I, 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 will, I will give in. I'm going to give in this year. I talked to her about life and DFS and the movement and how this is why we're here. And that soulless expression she had just when I said, you're part of the crew and here's Peter Mel's phone number. Reach out to him anytime you want. He's expecting your call. Uh, you know, here are these people who are supporting you. You know, here's Chris Waring's number. He's a part of the crew. Here's his number. She went from this, this soul I'm lost look to oh my gosh, there's hope, to a big smile, to beaming eyes. It was that quick. The minute this, this transaction happened between us, it was amazing. There was life back in her, and, and she's been doing wonderful ever since. You know, she's, she's reached out to Peter Mel, and she's talked to him a few times when the pressure's come in. She's now back in school. And, and I just talked with this young lady uh, just two days ago, and she said, my gosh, everything has changed. Everything. No one, no one is, is pressuring me anymore. No one is saying anything to me anymore. I've got DFS on every single surfboard, and I've got on every single skateboard, and everyone is now coming to me asking me how they can do what I'm doing. It's something that's been really magical. It's really amazing. We now move from a Facebook uh, campaign. It's still there, but we are now moving into a nonprofit. Um, we've incorporated. We've got a lot of great, powerful people within the surf industry behind us. Uh, we just um, did an alignment and a sanctioning with the NSSA and the WSA. And we are currently talking with the ISA. And we have uh, permission from the ASP that um, we can have free flow of information going through the ASP. So if uh, a DFS sticker is seen on a World Tour surfboard, we have permission to have the announcers, anyone talk about it, say, oh my gosh, there's Travis Logie, there's a DFS sticker on that. Well, you know, DFS stands for Drug Free Surf. You know, here's how you can get involved. Go to dfsmovement.org. So we have all that permission for them. What we're trying to get from the ASP right now, and we're in the works of doing, is uh, getting some PSA uh, spots. So getting some free commercial time with them. And, and so it looks good, but we don't know where we are with it yet. We probably won't know until the start of the 2014 season what's going on. But, you know, 
Aligning with the NSSA was one of the biggest things that we could possibly do. It's what we're going for. We're going for the kids. And uh, so when that came through, uh, we were just so elated, so happy to see that. And WSA was quick to follow. They came in just absolutely. So it gives exposure with both those uh, programs. Um, and things are moving. In only eight, only eight weeks, so much has happened. The one thing we are lacking is funds, you know. So that's where we are right now. We're doing the, the incorporation for the nonprofit and we're looking for funding. We, we need seed money. We need it very, very, very desperately. We need seed money. So. Huntington Beach surf photographer John Salanoa talking about his drug-free surfing movement, DFS. You can find out more at dfsmovement.org. Well, there you have it. That's five summer stories. Thank you so much for listening to Surf Splendor. If you'd like to hear more, then I need you to share this episode with a friend. That's how it grows. It's all for free, so if you dig it, post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Make sure to tag us, at Surf Splendor, so we could track the feedback. Leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes. That helps others to find the show. You can leave a comment on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Want to know what that music was in this episode? It's all on our website. You can also download past episodes for free on our website, iTunes, or Stitcher. We update new episodes every other Monday, so we'll be back in two weeks. As I mentioned earlier, the next episode that I'm working on is entitled Surf Filmmaking, The Legacy of Lost, featuring conversations with the owners of Lost Enterprises, the head filmmaker, and a few of the athletes. Don't miss it. Subscribe. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.